We return now to the first letter that the Apostle Peter has written, and if you haven't been with us for a while, uh, Peter is writing to a group of believers in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey-ish, and he is encouraging them to follow Jesus even when the culture around them, their neighbors and the society they live in, look down on them, persecute them, maybe make fun of them and revile them. And in the beginning of chapter 2, what he says is, if you follow Jesus, it will change the way that they see you, and it will even change them. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 12, he writes this, "'Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God.'" He's talking about culture change. How do people who follow Jesus change the culture around them? He begins to tell us, and he starts in an unlikely place. He starts with the people in the lowest position, the people who have the least power. Let's see who he's talking to. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we continue, will you join me as I pray for us? Oh God, we thank you that through your servant Peter, you have written these words. And I pray that you would send your Spirit to our hearts now so that as we hear them, we might hear you speaking to us. Help us to be changed by the words of life contained in this passage. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to start off by uh, saying I realize this could be a problematic passage for you. As you read this, the word servants in a Bible that you might have or maybe have heard before could be translated as slaves. And yet in here, Peter never just comes out and says, slavery is bad. You might be tempted to think that he is just telling slaves or servants to just have a different mindset about their situation in life. Just think about it a little differently. Even if your master is mean and cruel, like if you just have a positive outlook on life, everything will be okay. And that fact might lead you to think and believe what I'm sure you've heard before, what I know that I've heard and I've seen on Facebook, that the Bible condones slavery. But it does not. And in fact, it is only in Scripture that we see the social, anthropological, theological, and emotional arguments that led to the dismantling of the Atlantic slave trade. We've preached several sermons on what God says about slavery, about how the Bible deals with it, and I'd be happy to send those to you if you are interested in them. 
I don't want to get too far into the idea of slavery itself, but I do want us to understand who Peter is actually writing to here. Slavery in the Roman Empire was categorically different than chattel slavery of the 17 and 1800s that we're all commonly thinking of. Historians believe in the Roman Empire at least 20% of the individuals were enslaved, and perhaps as many as 50%. But they weren't enslaved based on their skin color or their ethnicity or their country of origin. It had far more to do with economic status and the need of those enslaved. Yes, some worked in fields, but other slaves were managers of people. They were teachers, they were doctors, and in multiple recorded cases, slaves owned other slaves. This is not the same slavery that we are used to thinking of. This is a group of people that Peter is writing to connected more by their deficiency of power than anything else. And more specifically, they are in positions where their lack of power is reinforced by the fact that there is someone over them, in charge of them, who has power, and they don't. And it's that idea, a relationship where you are powerless, and the person you're in relationship has all the power, that I would ask you to try to connect with this morning. And I am keenly aware that your experience of powerlessness, or perhaps your family's experience of oppression and suffering, might be significantly more severe and far more painful than anything that I've experienced, particularly as a middle-class white straight male. And so if I say something that offends you, please forgive me. If you find yourself saying you have no idea the kind of suffering that you're talking about, please hear me say you are correct. But Peter and the people he is writing to do. They understand. My goal is not to minimize or compare suffering or powerlessness in any way, but it is to convince you, as Peter does here, that turning to Jesus and entrusting yourself to God in those situations and relationships leads to a far better outcome than anything, any solution that your heart or this world has to offer. Peter says, don't chase power. Follow Jesus and rest in His power. I have three points for us this morning. Don't panic, they're short. We're starting with Peter's call to not chase power. In fact, his words to servants are, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject. This is the the Greek word hupotasso, which is rightly translated subject or perhaps submit or obey, but it comes with this connotation of arranging yourself under, right? Understanding the relationship that you're in puts you in a position beneath someone else. Think about that children's toy. It's a yellow stick, and it's got brightly colored rings that decrease in size, and you've got to put them in the right order. You can't put the yellow small ring on the bottom. That's just wrong. Arrange it correctly. That's what Peter is calling us, the servants, to do. People who are in a position of powerlessness recognize and, in fact, embrace your powerlessness. Embrace your powerlessness. Now, this might speak directly to you in your workplace and the relationship you have with your boss. Or perhaps if you're in school, the relationship you have with your teacher. Maybe this is talking to you as you feel at home with your spouse, 
or perhaps with your parents. For me, the first relationship I thought of as I was reading this passage and connecting with it was with our landlord. Earlier this year, we were given two months to find a new place to live. We had to move out quickly. We found a great house, and the owner of this house lives overseas. And his friend, who lives here, has another job, is doing him a favor, and does the landlording for us. And and even as I say that out loud, do you hear those words? It's not house managing. It's not the check-in guy. It's land lording. Lording. There's obviously an establishment of power in his favor. And I'm going to tell you honestly, I don't like this guy at all. I think that he is uh, cheap and uncaring. I don't think that he is really interested in doing the work that a landlord is supposed to do. I think that he is constantly trying to find ways to cheat us out of a good rental experience. And so what I find is that in my heart, whenever I come into a situation where I have to interact for him, I am trying to generate some kind of power for myself, to, to tip the scales, to invert the power hierarchy right? A neighbor complained about a tree in our backyard, and I knew he wasn't going to want to do something about it. So I got a certified arborist to come out and tell us what to do. Expert testimony. How are you going to disagree with that? He wanted to treat a pet-ruined carpet. The previous tenants had let their dogs pee and poop everywhere, and he wanted to use spot remover. Here's a lengthy New England Journal of Medicine article explaining the potential effects of breathing in pet urine and feces. Right? He didn't want to take responsibility for the appliances that were already in the house. That's fine. I'm going to buy a home warranty, and you can reimburse me for it. And guess what? It's going to be the top of the line. Primo. This is my favorite, though. The best way that I know to grab power in this relationship is to just take full responsibility for everything. And I'm just going to fix it. I'm going to figure out how to take care of it on my own so I don't have to talk to you at all. It's a power move. Whenever we are confronted with our powerlessness, with the power that others have over us, our sinful hearts push us to figure out a way to grab power back through our words, through our actions, through our inaction, in order to flip that hierarchy of power. The world tells us the only way that you can be happy and secure and comfortable is if you have power to control the outcomes in your life. It's all about power, and so when we feel our lack of it, our hearts tell us, got to get it back. Whatever you have to do, get it back. But, as you probably know, any time that we attempt to wrestle power away, to invert that relational hierarchy, it just causes more problems. The person who has the power uses it in a more unfair way, right? It increases the power inequity, it escalates conflict, and it creates far more damage than it does any resolution. Now, right now, your heart might be crying out, but it's unjust. The way that this person is using their power, it's so unfair. It's so unjust, right? Your heart might sound a little bit more like mine, like a whiny six-year-old. It's not fair. Correct, Peter says. He says, what good is it if you mess up and are punished for it and you endure? You deserved it. What he's talking about here is when you are mistreated for doing good, when it is unfair. The invitation is to humble yourself, to submit yourself, to embrace your powerlessness. And Peter says it is a gracious thing. 
It is a beautiful gift of God's grace to you. You experience God's grace in an amazing way when you embrace your powerlessness, when you don't grab for power. And guess what? It is a gift of God's grace to that other person through you. Now, Stephen, you might be saying, this is ridiculous. This borderline inhumane for you to suggest that I just put up with being treated unfairly. You want me to just live under someone else's power? You want me to, in the face of injustice, not fight back? I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know where to begin. Don't chase power. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because, verse 21, Peter says this is one of the reasons that Jesus suffered. It's one of the reasons that Jesus' suffering was recorded with such detail. Peter says he left an example so we could follow him, his steps. How do you endure injustice? How do you submit to the powerful who oppress you? How do you experience the grace of God in that way? You follow Jesus' footsteps. Earlier in the spring when my mom was here visiting us, we went hiking in Almaden Quicksilver. And I don't know if the spring was too far away for you to remember. It was for me. I thought it was last year. But it was just this spring when it was really rainy, right? And so all the dirt trails were all muddy, but the sun had come out and dried a lot of it. We were hiking. We got to a spot on the trail where the trees covered it to the point where the rays of the sun couldn't get through. The rest of the trail was nice and dry. This spot was incredibly muddy. And we were standing there talking about whether we should push through, try and find a way through the mud or go back. And my mom just said, let's go for it. Follow me. Well, she got a couple of steps in, maybe halfway across, and she started to slip and slide. And me, being the stubborn person that I am, was like, that's the wrong way to go. You just got to go this way and went in a different direction. And I got maybe four or five steps past her and started slipping and sliding. And that's when Nicole said, girls, follow me. We're going to walk this way over to the grass and walk up the side of the mud to the other side where they arrived clean and dry because they followed in their mother's footsteps, <laughs> right? This is the same idea Peter has for us here. He says, submitting and humbling yourselves in following Jesus' footsteps, following his examples, behaving like he behaved, right? And the idea he has is a, like a child learning to write has these big block letters that they trace over, literally following the path. And that's what he says. Specifically, though, Peter has in mind our speech, how we talk and respond verbally when we are oppressed and powerless. Hear this as Peter talks about Jesus' behavior. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Peter's saying, when you follow Jesus, especially when it comes to how you speak, this is how you should do it. And he almost perfectly describes my actions when I feel oppressed and powerless. Just to be clear, the inverse of what Jesus does. Not what Jesus did, but the exact opposite. Right? Don't we all fib just a little bit if we think it's going to help us avoid punishment? Aren't we really good at trading barbs with people? If you say something mean to me, boy, I got four or five things just festering back here that are about to come out at you. And look at me. Look at my size. I'm like one step away from threatening just being here. Right? The, 
the, the way that Peter talks to us about Jesus' words, he says, doing what Jesus does, it will be a gracious thing, an experience of God's grace, an outworking of God's grace when you are truthful in what you say, even if it doesn't benefit you, especially if it causes more problems for you. And when you are, are being slandered or being spoken of unkindly, and you choose not to slander back, not to speak terribly to the person who is speaking terribly to you. That is God's grace working in you. That's not you doing the right thing. That's God doing the right thing in you. And when people mistreat you and you don't threaten them in return, you don't promise that you will get revenge, that you're going to get even, that's an experience of God's grace that they get through you, through your choice to follow Jesus' steps as it comes to your speech. We have about 25 guys in the church going through a study called sonship, right? And in lesson two, it challenges us to follow what we call, what it, it calls the tongue assignment. For one week, don't gossip, complain, blame shift, defend, slander, boast, or deceive others. Just, just that. No big deal, right? Every time that we've done this lesson, every time I've done this lesson, I'm going through it for my fourth time, I'm so shocked at how quickly we all fail. We are so taken aback by how hard it is to use our speech only to build up other people. It takes a lot of power to even do this correctly, right? Following Jesus in suffering and submission in this way actually takes an extreme measure of power. Think about this, the, the fighting back, the threatening, the lying, slandering, grumbling, distancing ourselves, those are all our sinful attempts to assert power, to flip that power relationship. And yet, the most powerful thing that you could possibly do is actually not to pursue power, but instead to follow in Jesus' footsteps. It takes far more power to do that than you can ever generate on your own, a supernatural power only His power, and it's in His power that you can rest. Don't chase power. Follow Jesus and rest in His power. These actions that Peter talks about, he doesn't just pluck them out of thin air and just say, ah, this makes sense. I'm going to create an argument this way, and I hope that this, you know, entreats you to do the right thing. What he is doing is tying in Isaiah 53, what we heard from earlier in the service, written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years prior. A prophecy about the person of power who God would send to deliver His people. Salvation and freedom and renewal would come to God's people through this one mighty person that He would send. But Isaiah 53 says that person will suffer. That person is going to be abandoned, shunned by people, and yet He would not revile. He will not lie. He will not threaten. He would bear the sins of his people, and he would die in their place. The, the power of the gospel is declared to us here from Peter. Jesus took your sins on himself and died in your place on the tree. Jesus' power was on full display in his humility and his death. And his power was on full display in his resurrection from the dead and his victory over sin as well. 
Peter says here, all of it is Jesus' power, and He gives it all to you. He bore our sins on the tree, the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's following in Jesus' footsteps. We can only do that if He gives us His power. Now, we've been using this word power over and over again, and uh, if you're like me, your brain operates 75% in movie quotes. And so, you might be thinking, with great power comes Spider-Man. Well done, right? And so, when I hear this idea of the gospel that Jesus gives us His power, my first thought is, yes, and now i got to go do I got to go practice. I got to go do this the right way. I have to not lie. I have to not threaten. I have to not slander somebody back. And I have to do it really, really well. And if I fail, guess what? I got to try harder because it's responsibility and I've been given the power, so I got to work. That's not what Peter says. Look what Peter says. He says, submit and humble yourself. Why? Because Christ suffered for you because He didn't grasp that power, because He bore our sins on the tree, because by Him you are healed. You were straying, but now He has brought you back as the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You can do this because He is doing it and has done it, right? Entrusting ourselves to God as Jesus did means believing that all He has done and is doing for you is a place of rest, right? It's a place of rest. Jesus' power is a place of rest. But don't be fooled, that's not a call to inaction, right? I uh, have been going to the same gym for like six years now, and over the course of those six years, I have also accumulated a lot of workout stuff at my house. I have a home gym and a gym that I pay to go to. Um, And I know in my head I can do all the same exercises at home that I can at the gym. But I've also noticed that at the gym, I'm generally more confident. I lift heavier, and I'm far more successful in workouts when I'm at the gym. And I know the reason why. is because there's somebody there, a trained coach, watching me, making sure that I'm not doing stupid things, that I'm not being dangerous in the way that I am lifting or working out or whatever. So I trust that I can push a little bit more knowing that they might call me back if I'm doing something wrong. But that's not the only thing that happens more at the gym. I also fail more there. I drop lifts more there. I don't finish workouts in the allotted time, and I go too fast and I puke. Because I feel free. I feel free to try things knowing that I'm being watched and taken care of. I feel free to fail because I know someone's there to catch me. If I'm at home, if it's just me on my own, I only do things I know I'm good at and I can succeed. Entrusting yourself to God, resting in Jesus' power, it's not an invitation to inaction. Peter is not saying, well, just don't worry about those relationships where you're powerless. Just, you know, don't think about it. Just coast. Everything's going to be okay. Jesus will take care of you eventually. I'm sorry life is rough, but like, just chill. The invitation of the gospel is to see that Jesus' power invites you to do radical things, to live humbly in relationships where you don't have power, to not lie, to not slander, maybe succeeding, maybe failing, but knowing that you are in Jesus, the good shepherd, the overseer of your soul, and trusting that in God, 
either all of the sin in your life will be covered by the blood of Jesus, and for those not covered in the blood of Jesus, they will be judged. God is taking care of it. So here's what I've decided about my landlord. Here's how I think this passage changes me and the way that I interact with him. First is to recognize that he probably is not going to change. Second, to recognize and believe that being the renter means there is always going to be a power inequity between us. But the call of the gospel is to be a good tenant, to take care of what I'm responsible for and what does not belong to me as if it did, to point out injustice respectfully, to ask to be treated fairly, to tell him only the truth, to not slander him behind his back, to his face, or in my heart. I'm committed to see that this is following Jesus' footsteps in this relationship, and I'm happy to let you know how it goes. It is my prayer that following Jesus in this way would lead me to experience God's grace in a new and unique way, and somehow, in some way, it would lead him to experience God's grace too, and perhaps an experience with Jesus himself. Let's pray to that end. God, we thank you. We thank you that you don't look on our situations of strife and struggle and say, just get over it. Just move on. But in fact, you meet us in them. You point us to the reality that Jesus came and suffered for us, which means he knows no matter what, we are not suffering alone. But when we turn to Jesus, we find someone who understands, who empathizes with us, and who gives us the power to follow Him as we move closer to You. And in that, we experience Your grace. Would You meet us, Jesus, in the midst of our suffering? We pray all of this in His mighty name. Amen.